This is Al Simon with Sandler Training by Simon Inc. On Business Radio X, my show is Simon Says, Let's Talk Business. And today we're going to change it up a bit. No guests today, just me yakking away. Uh, I get asked a lot of questions in, in my line of work and uh, of uh, sales, coaching, training, uh, helping people succeed in the world of sales and sales management and customer service. I thought I would just pontificate a bit today about some of these questions, see if we can dissect the world of sales a bit today. So let's just, uh, let's just dig in. Uh, this is my, my top 12 list of questions that I get asked. Here we go. Here's the first one. With so many people buying online these days, is the sales profession an endangered species? Great question. I read an article not too long ago. I believe it was on Harvard Business Review talking about how by the year 2020, there's going to be maybe one third of the number of sales professionals that there are today. Well, that article is probably two years old. So maybe they were saying about five years that there would uh, be one third of the number of sales professionals in the world uh, because of the whole online buying thing. You know, look at uh, Amazon, eBay, just direct uh, merchants going direct on and on and on. Here's the thing about that. If you look, if you break it down, the, the salespeople that are definitely going away are mostly from the retail world. And most sales professionals uh, that I work with are not in the retail world. They're, you know, they're not sitting behind a counter, somebody walking up with an item to buy. That's not the world that I work in with my clients. And so, and so we're talking about business to business, frequently called B2B where being a sales professional means something, where the prospects can't just go online, pick out what they want, order it, and uh, expect for consistent delivery and quality products and, and uh, work out the services and renewals and on and on and on. There's just so much involved in true professional B2B selling that if that ever gets replaced by technology, uh, I think that, that, that day uh, could still be 20, 30, 40 years away. Uh, in my opinion. And so I think there will always be a place, at least for the foreseeable future, certainly in my lifetime and many of our clients, probably beyond, where the selling, prof- the selling profession would still be a valid and profitable career. Question number two, is cold calling dead? Well, yeah. <laughs> and no. <laughs> I know, I know, dumb answer. But here's the thing. Uh, this is really, you know, cold calling in, in, a lot of, in a lot of vertical markets is probably not a great idea. On the other hand, in a, in a lot of vertical markets, cold calling is a good idea. Uh, whether it be on the street walking in or whether it be picking up the phone and dialing somebody direct. The cool thing about that is the sales professional has a lot of control over who they call on when they call, what do they say, what do they ask. And so for that reason, I like it. A lot of my clients do great cold calling. A lot of my clients don't cold call. And so I think, it, uh, you know, is it dead? No, but in many cases it is. And sometimes it's because the, the sales professional themselves believes it won't work. And so it's the old, you know, you know thing, the old ad- adage, if you, if you think it'll work, it will. If you don't think it'll work, it won't. And uh, I think there's a lot of truth to that with regard to cold calling. 
Having said that, I think today there are a lot of other ways to prospect for new business that uh, may be a lot more effective for most people than cold calling. Uh, I think certainly using LinkedIn uh, and um, asking for referrals, you know, will never go out of vogue, uh, never be, uh, never be ineffective, ineffective. And um, certainly networking, trade shows, doing talks for associations, writing blogs, lots of ways to generate new conversations with new prospects in your target market. And cold calling is just one of those things. I will say this, though. The people that cold call well really study it. They work hard at it. They practice it. And they become very, very good at it. And the other thing is they're bulletproof. They don't worry about it. Because when when you're making cold calls, you're going to get shot down a lot. You're going to get lots of voicemail that won't get returned, probably. You're going to get gatekeepers that are going to shut you out and, and not let you talk to the decision maker. Uh, you're going to get people that are rude and hanging up on you. It's going to happen. A lot more than getting appointments will happen. So you, you really have to have thick skin and you have to be able to handle rejection because there's going to be a bunch of it. Uh, but people who spend an hour, two hours, three hours a day making direct cold calls, those people do get appointments if they, if they study it, work at it, and master it. All right, next question. Are top-performing sales professionals born or are they made? And the key there, I think, in that question is top performers. Certainly, we all know people that we think uh, well, they're, you know, they're a born salesperson. They could sell ice to an Eskimo you know, because they have the gift of gab or because they um, talk a lot. It's another way of saying that. Or because they're convincing in, in, in in, in putting forth their argument. Maybe they were good on the debate team in school, things like that. So there are attributes, attributes that you can have as, as part of your makeup that would make it easier for you to sell well. There's no doubt about that. But top performers work at it. Top performers improve their skill sets. Top performers learn from their mistakes and don't make the same mistakes twice. So they're made in many cases. Now, you take someone who's got some attributes of a top-performing sales pro- uh, professional already, and you get them to do things like self, what's the word, development, you know, where they're, where they're reading books, they're taking training, they're getting coaching, they're, uh, they're in forums with uh, other top, performer, uh, top performers uh, so that they trade best practices, things like that. And that's a great, great scenario. And uh, top performers are always, always learning. So this is, uh, this is Al Simon with Sander Training by Simon Inc. on Business Radio X. My show is called Simon Says, Let's Talk Business. And today I'm going through the questions I get asked a lot and just pontificating a bit here today, going all Rush Limbaugh on you. So let's take the next one. An old, well-known sales training firm which if I said the name, you would probably recognize it if you're in business, has popularized the concept, act enthusiastic and you'll be enthusiastic. Agree or disagree? I have a story about that one. I was at a trade show and I was there on a mission from one of my clients to do some, some uh, secret shopping on their competitors. So it was actually the Atlanta Boat Show, uh, which I think is going on right now or soon to be. 
I was there and it was early morning and the, the trade show floor had not opened yet. And I was walking around locating the uh, booths of these competitors of my client. And I went by this one area. I mean, you call it booths. I mean, they're really huge, huge uh, display areas for, and they have all these boats there. If you've ever been, it's pretty impressive. And I, I was walking by the area of display of one of the marinas. And there must have been, I don't know, 25 or 30 guys, in, you know, with their logoed shirts for their marina, getting ready for the day, you know, the full day of working a trade show. And they were in a big huddle. So if you imagine 25 guys linking arms, arm to shoulder in a circle, and they were chanting, act enthusiastic and you'll be enthusiastic. Act enthusiastic and you'll be enthusiastic. And then the big crescendo, act enthusiastic and you'll be enthusiastic. And they were all excited. This is probably what, 7.30, 7.45 in the morning. I went by that same marina's display six or seven hours later, you know, late afternoon. And this is what I saw. Oh, you want to see a boat, sir? Okay, follow me. <laughs> You see, the point is enthusiasm is too uh, much linked to emotion and to energy. And so it can come across to the prospect as being uh, insincere, uh, faked. And um, if that's that's what the prospect thinks, then they start wondering if you really do believe in your own product or service. And that's not a good place you want your product to be thinking. So enthusiasm, yeah. Uh, I'd prefer to see in our clients, I'd prefer to see a passion uh, for, their, for what they do, for what they do for their clients. I like that undercurrent, uh, that, uh, that very under, you know, um, underemphasized undercurrent of passion that just sustains the day, all day, and is definitely uh, something that prospects pick up on, that you love what you do, you believe in it, you believe that you can help them without having to say it that way. And so that's what I agree with. How about the hard sell? This is a question I get a lot. Al, what's the hard sell and should I use it? <laughs> Good question. Well, the hard sell is typically associated with some kind of pressure-packed moment in time, you know, where the sharks are circling and the violins are crescendoing and the prospect feels great pressure to take the pen from your hand and sign your contract. No, don't do that. that that's what I was taught when I was right, right out of college, my first sales job. And that's what I was taught at all the sales jobs I had for about 20 years. And that was the, the thinking back then that the hard sell was, was designed to get people to do what they didn't want to do uh, or to do what they, maybe the back of their mind uh, thought they should do, but they still had doubts. And so you put the hard sell on them so that they give in to the pressure and sign. But that's not a good start of any kind of partnership. And as soon as uh, you have some kind of a small bump in the road uh, after implementation starts, getting the, um, you know, the, deal, the, the contract deal going, as soon as there's any kind of compromise or, or, or mess up, immediately the, the, your new client will turn on you because they blame you for putting the hard sell on them. People don't like to have pressure put on them and people and salespeople don't like to either. Now, right about here, I usually get asked the follow-on question, which is, yeah, but Al, isn't the prospect waiting for me to ask for the order? 
shouldn't I ask for the order? And uh, here's the thing, you know, there's millions of sales calls made every day by millions of salespeople. So there's always going to be the one-off, the what about this, the what, the what about that. There's always going to be that weird sales call, that, that different prospect that's going to do things uh, differently. But in the, in the mass, uh, you know, the, the, the great majority of sales calls, that prospect doesn't want to have pressure put on them. And neither should you as a sales professional want to put pressure on yourself to get something closed. You, you really want to have the prospect to agree to have the aha moment in their own mind and their own heart that it makes sense to partner with you. And so here's the big closing line that a lot of our clients use. You ready? What do you want to do now? That's it, right? How anticlimactic can it be? But seriously, you know, if you've done all that you need to do, which is find out of what, of what they're trying to accomplish, what are the roadblocks in their way? And if you pair that up with what you know about what you sell in your industry, uh, you should be able to make a great case that the prospect says, yep, that makes sense. It's almost like they have to reach into your briefcase and pull out the contract. It's almost like that. And when that happens and you get it going, and something small bump in the road, the prospect will say, hey, as long as Al fixes it, or as long as Jim fixes it, or as long as Susie fixes it, it's okay. It was my, my decision. It still makes sense. And that's, that's a true partnership. Next question. Hey, Al, isn't persistence an admirable trait for a sales professional? Well, let's examine that one. There's a, there's a popular graphic going around LinkedIn been going around for maybe a year. I believe it might be rooted in some study. I'm not sure about the metrics there, but it says that it, that it takes the minimum of seven to eight touches for a prospect to decide to buy from you. And so therefore, be persistent, keep going. And then I think it says something like most salespeople give up after two or three. And you know, all that may be true, but I don't believe it's talking about how many touches to win a deal. I believe it's talking about how many times you try to get someone to answer your call or talk to you. So it's a, it's a prospecting thing. And the problem with persistence in prospecting is it's too close to the word pest. And so we can run the risk of the prospect being annoyed by our sense of wanting to be persistent and show how persistent we are would much rather our clients not be a pest, but instead prove to the prospect that they'll do what they say they'll do. So I don't know what the number of touches is. It depends on the situation. I think in prospecting in general, I'd I'd like to see three to five attempts in, say, a three-week period. After that, you know, put them back in your regular marketing rotation you know, your newsletters or your social media posts and so on, and, and then go for the direct connection again in six months, 12 months, whatever makes sense. Uh, but don't just hammer away at them seven or eight times in a three, four-day period trying to, trying to get an appointment. I, th- I, think, uh, I think if you're doing that, you're, 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 you're missing the boat with most prospects. Like I said, you'll come across the occasional one that will actually like the fact that you're you know, bothering the heck out of them. But most people, no. Again, this is Simon Says, Let's Talk Business. 
on uh, Business Radio X. I'm Al Simon, your host, owner of Sandler Training by Simon Inc. We do we do sales training, coaching, and sales management training and coaching, and customer service training and coaching. And our clients are people who are serious about getting new business and growing existing business, and we work hard at it. These are questions I get asked a lot. So here's the next one. What is the best compensation plan for a salesperson? All right. Well, once again, I'm going to say it depends. I mean, you know, there are different models. There's, there's account management. Uh, there's uh, pure hunter versus farmer situations. There's the combination hunter-farmer. There's, uh, there's team selling, where, you're, where especially in the, in the world of enterprise selling, where you might be part of a team calling on very, very large prospective clients. And so in, in each of those different scenarios has a, has a different compensation plan that would probably be best. But usually this question, what is the best compensation plan, is rooted in the, in, in, in the thought by the hiring manager, should I give someone a big salary and small variable component, or should it be the other way around? Smaller salary, larger var- variable component. Or should it even be 100% commission? And so let me address it that way, more direct, you know, given the fact that there are different scenarios that we're, you know, where a different model might be best. I truly believe that, that top performers are very confident in their ability to win business. And, and they're also probably fairly money motivated, not always, but in many cases. And so if they're really confident that they can make it rain, bring in revenue, sell stuff, uh, they're going to like a high variable component. I mean, years ago when I was part of a sales team that uh, uh, in the corporate world and uh, we had a great comp plan, it was a very, very high salary and a good variable component. And we all made a bunch of money for a couple of years, all of us on the sales team. But, but then the management decided that they were paying us too much. <laughs> And so they changed it to a completely 100% commission plan overnight. And you can imagine the grumbling that took place in the sales team when that happened. And, and a couple of guys left immediately. They just quit their jobs and went to look for an, uh, another uh, job where they could have a salary. And guess what? Those were not the, the top performers. The ones that left were not the top performers. Uh, those of us who stayed... Most of us made more money that year because 100% commission meant no ceiling uh, to our pay. Now, again, you know, you got team selling or you've got, you know, long sales cycles and, you know, so maybe there needs to be some kind of a draw or some kind of a guarantee for a period. But I do like the high component for variable, the variable component. I like that model. That'll weed out the pretenders from the truly top performers. Here's another question that comes from hiring managers. Should you hire good sales attributes and teach the industry or look for industry experience and hope the person can be productive in sales? Terrific question. Again, it might vary by certain uh, industries. You know, some industries you need to be more technically oriented, need to have... uh, a lot of schooling, let's say, in the engineering or, or technical things, or 
you know, healthcare or whatever, you, you know, some industries, you just need that. Uh, but a lot of my clients these days are, are going the other direction. They're hiring people right out of school of experience or maybe not any experience and certainly don't even know if they can sell yet. And they're teaching them from the ground up on the industry and on sales skills. And it's working. It's working. Um, you know, you want to talk about millennials and, and, and some of the other younger generations. They tend to like the autonomy. They tend to like the skill set building. They tend to actually uh, do well in that scenario. Whereas old guys like me, we tend to be somewhat set in our ways. And we might promise our new potential boss that we'll bring accounts with us from our old company. You know, but we find that that rarely, really happens. It really does. You, you know, you got a big, what we used to call a big Rolodex, you know, that contact list of relationships that uh, would, quote, guarantee uh, new sales. You know, it just really, really actually plays out in real life that way. And usually those, those veteran salespeople are leaving their current position for a reason. And that reason is sometimes because they're just not really good at sales. They're actually pretenders. And, and I'm exhibit A for that myself. You know, the first 22 years of my sales career, I was not a professional salesperson. I was an order taker. But I thought I was a good professional salesperson because I had a great comp plan. And I happened to be in a good situation where the phone was ringing, you know, right place, right time, which meant that I wasn't, I wasn't failing enough to really learn from the lessons. And it wasn't until I myself received Sandler training that I realized I was a fraud. You know, 22 years into my selling career, realized I was a fraud. I tell you, that'll wake you up. 44 years, years of, uh, of age and always been in the same career and now realizing you're not really good at it. <laughs> but it's true. And so in a lot of ways, I like, I like to have that, that younger, open-minded person who will come in, allow themselves to be developed, to be trained, uh, and who will go for it. Next question. Al, I sell a commodity. My prospects buy only on price. How do I win deals without discounting to be the lowest price? Well, first of all, stop acting like a commodity. I mean, why do people buy from you? If they could buy from somebody else for a lower, why would they buy from you? In fact, you should probably ask them that. When the prospect tells you that your price is higher than your competition, why not say, yeah, well, I expect it to be. Let me ask you a question. Why do you suppose our clients buy from us anyway? Now, whatever the prospect answers, that's what you got to reinforce. So if they say, well, you probably have better quality, then you say, yep, that's probably it. Or if they say, you probably have better customer service, then you should say, yep, that's probably it. Or whatever it is they say, just reinforce it because that's what's on their mind. And, um, and again, teach your, your prospects that you'll do what you say you'll do. And they'll start realizing that you're a resource and that you're part of the value. And that maybe you don't really sell a commodity. Maybe you have a product or service that can be bought for less, but it won't be as good, if that makes any sense. What are the best metrics? I get asked. What are the best metrics to track to make sure I'm doing the right things? the right way. You know, sales has a built-in scorecard. 
It's called sales revenue. It's easy to track. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing the right things in the right quantities in the right way with the right people at the right times. The only way to, to know that is to track behavior. And behavior just happens to be the one thing you can control. You can't control when the prospect will buy. You can't control when the lead will come in. Uh, but you can track and control what it is you do. So what are you doing for networking? What are you doing with LinkedIn? What are you doing with regard to social media? What are you, what are you doing with regard to uh, writing blogs and giving talks? And what are you doing with regard to putting on seminars and webinars? And what are you doing with regard to the number of people you ask for a referral and the number of outbound attempts you make like cold calls? How about resurrection calls? You know, those past clients or past prospects that didn't buy from you back then. Are you calling on them again a couple years later to see if they still have that same pain that they had back then? You know, there's, there's all kinds of ways uh, to, um, or activities to do to get new business and grow existing business. And you should track the major things. We call it a cookbook. Track the major things that way, you know, if you, do the, if you did them consistently and did them well, you would exceed your goals. And those are the metrics. So, for, you know, and, and don't have too many. You know, each, each individual sales professional should have maybe four, five max things that they're tracking. They might do more things than that to get new business and grow existing business, but they're only tracking four to five. Because we don't want to make this some kind of a administrative nightmare. We, might, we want to make it simple, easy to know that you're doing the right things in the right quantities with the right people at the right times to, um, to fill your opportunity pipelines. Again, Al Simon, Sandler Training by Simon Inc. This show is called Simon Says, Let's Talk Business. Today we're talking selling on Business Radio X. Going through some questions I get asked a lot. Here's one. Al, my accounts keep me on the run, taking care of so many details and projects to keep the current customers happy. How in the world do I find the time to prospect for new business? Okay, so we all know that's time management. And we all know that's, that's an oxymoron. You really can't manage time. We all have 24 hours in a day. doesn't change. So it's really about managing our activity. It's managing what we do and when we do it. And we have this concept at Sandler called pay time versus no pay time. Many sales professionals are spinning their wheels and really robbing themselves of, of more sales by doing no pay time activities during pay time. So let me explain. Pay time is defined as that time of day when you can be in front of or on the phone with prospects and clients. All right, so for most people in the B2B world, that's roughly, what, 8.30 a.m. to 5.30 p.m., something like that. Those of you that call on households, you know, like remodelers or um, real estate agents, people like that, you know, so you want to catch the, uh, you know, the homeowners in the home. That's probably some evening times, things like that. That's pay time. So um, that means that during that time, you want to be doing the things like having the phone conversations, the face-to-face -face appointments, the presentations, 
you know, those kinds of, uh, of conversations, which if you're, if you're using that pay time to respond to emails, to do research, to write proposals, you know, probably not a good use of your time during the middle of the day, the middle of, middle, middle of the selling day uh, to be doing things like that. Now, having said that, we all mess up this pay time versus no pay time thing. And it's not supposed to be a guilt trip. It's supposed to be a concept that makes you money. So don't worry if you find yourself clicking around on LinkedIn for too long at 11 o'clock in the morning. We all do it. But you need to realize that it's happening to you and have the discipline to stop. At some point to stop, finish your research after the kids have gone to bed or whatever. Um, Proposals, hey, you know, I, I realize that most of you probably have to check with people internally you know, product specialists, engineers, your boss, whoever, and you don't expect them to talk with you about, about those things during no pay time because it's probably time that they might want, to, might want to be with their families. So take care of those conversations during the middle of the day. Absolutely. But finish the proposal at night or first thing the next morning. Uh, have the discipline to do that. Email, well, we could talk forever on email. But you should only take a look at email a few times a day, not, you know, 50 times real time on your phone like most people do. Three or four times a day, check your email, see what's come in. If it's a client or a prospect that's high priority, take care of it right now if you can. Everything else, you can, everything else can wait. Can wait till after hours, first thing tomorrow morning, whatever makes more sense. Uh, so we do uh, have a lot of other uh, time saving, so to speak, uh, tips for you, but it's probably enough for now. It's just take a look at what you're doing and when you're doing it. And you might find that uh, you have a whole lot more time than you think you do to do the right things at the right time. All right, last question for today. Al, my prospects don't return phone calls and emails. <laughs> they tell me to just send them information and pricing and, uh, and they'll get back with me, but they don't crickets and it's so frustrating yeah this is a big one these days you know the um the fact that people do have a a cell phone a smartphone and they can and they can screen calls and texts and emails as much as they want and emails tend to also get buried pretty quickly and and then to make all that might make all that worse metrics show that uh people don't really listen to and respond to voicemails much anymore either. <laughs> it's really a conundrum. You know, you want to be proactive. You want to reach out. You want to follow up, certainly. Uh, but a lot of times prospects are unresponsive. And I, and I, and I, I believe that the reason for all that is, is, is twofold. One is because technology makes it easy for prospects to do a lot of research on their own. And salespeople will send them pricing and information without any kind of promise for a conversation afterwards. And the other one is, the, other, the second thing is based on that, is that most sales professionals don't know how to keep control of a deal and how to have uh, responsibility for what needs to happen next and when that's going to happen and make it happen. And it's pretty common for people to send out information, links to websites, videos, pricing, and then not get the prospect on the phone again uh, or not get them to return emails. And it just happens over and over and over. So here's the thing. 
we always say, take responsibility for everything that happens. If I blame the prospect for this, I can't fix it. But if I blame myself and figure out what I can do differently and do it different next time, I've got much, a much better chance of getting things back on track. We need to take responsibility for what we say, how we say it. You have a great meeting with a prospect and it just feels really good and you just know the momentum is so great and it's not going to be a problem to get back together with them. That's when you should worry the most. So it sounds like this. Mike, what a great meeting. Thank you so much for meeting with me today. Yeah, I feel, I feel good about what we've talked about and what needs to happen next. And I would like to know from your standpoint how you feel about what we've talked about today and what needs to happen next. Then be quiet. <laughs> Let Mike talk. And then after he's done, say, okay, well, based on that, may I suggest that we do X and Y and have that all done by the end of next week? You good with that? And if Mike says yes, then you say, okay, great. How about I send you a calendar invitation for a conversation Friday at 10 o'clock in the morning? Probably take 15, 20 minutes and you can do blah, 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 blah. And I'll do blah, 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 blah. And the end of all that, we'll have a blah, 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 blah. Whatever the blah, blahs need to be, it depends on the situation, of course. But as soon as Mike says, yes, that makes sense. Let's do that. Send me that calendar invitation. Now you have the hook to make sure the deal keeps going and doesn't get stalled. Now, it's still going to get stalled sometimes because prospects are prospects and they haven't been trained by us yet. We're thinking about opening a prospect school. I wonder if anybody will show up. But as sales professionals, let's take responsibility. Let's do it right. Okay, that's probably enough for today. I've probably filled your head with too much stuff. Uh, you know, I don't talk about my own stuff very often on this show. I usually have guests and we talk about their world and how they can help people. So I appreciate uh, if you if you came this far listening in, then I appreciate that. Thanks for letting me just kind of rumble on and on here today. But these are the questions I typically get asked. I would suggest that if you have more, send them to me. Send them to al.simon at sandler.com. Al.simon at sandler.com. Send me your questions. And I'll get back to you directly on them and maybe talk about them on my next uh, time that I do a show like this where it's just me talking. And uh, you can also visit our website at Simon Inc. I-N-C, simoninc.sandler.com. Once again, this is Simon Says Let's Talk Business with your host, Al Simon, at Sandler Training by Simon Inc. on Business Radio X. Thanks for listening.